You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. The focal passage is two verses. It's Acts 17, 24, and 25, and it says this. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You all can be that it's over there. Good morning. Man, it, it, it really is nice to have humans here. We really like that. Um, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors, so thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Uh, I heard of a story uh, of a woman, an older woman, who was hanging out at a church gathering, and the pastor was encouraging them to, to pray. And so afterwards, she came up to the preaching pastor, and she said, um, you know, you encouraged us to pray and, uh, and, and to talk to God about things in our life. And so I do have one question. Does God want me to pray about the small things in my life or, or just the big things? And you can kind of feel the authenticity of the little woman's <clears throat> voice. She, she's, she's, she's saying, you know, um, I, I have needs and I have things that I want to go to God about. I want to depend on Him, and I want to respond, and, and the Bible says that we ought to pray, and, and we get to interact with God in such a way, but, but I don't want to be a bother, and, and maybe you've felt that way before, but I, but I don't want to be a bother. Should I kind of aim to like, okay, I'm only going to throw the big stuff His way, and then kind of just deal with the small stuff? Um, you know, I, I don't want to overwhelm Him. And the pastor replied, ma'am, all of the things in your life are small. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but, but, but at first it hit me like an uncomfortable kind of uppercut because that didn't make me feel good. Like, hey, all the things in your life are small, woman. You know, that, that made me feel a little uncomfortable. Followed by kind of a settling understanding of the gist that unlike me, God need not make distinction between big and small matters in life, in the universe. There are no obstacles where he's like, oh, that one needs some extra planning and some, some foresight and, and some extra power. I better get a good night rest for that. He doesn't operate that way. All of the matters in life for all eternity, backwards and forwards, they are small matters to the ability of God to provide what they require. So, so that's not to say that the matters of life don't matter. That's not to say that, that anything in your life don't matter. In fact, Scripture tells us on repeat in many different ways that God cares about the most minute things in your life. He, he, he cares deeply. It's just that they aren't big deals in the way that, that we uh, stress out and we fret. And, and I tell you that, that I bite my lip like this when I'm nervous about things, right? When I'm driving in my car and I'm like, how, am I, how is this going to work, right? He, he doesn't do that. Of God is having lots of strength. I mean, he's God. And lots of power and lots of energy, and maybe even lots of attention for me, 
and for everyone else. But, you know, even superheroes get tired, right? And so uh, God surely must get tired of all of the problems and all of the prayers and all of the people. Surely he must get tired of me. But God is not like us. Thanks be to God. He is not like us. And there are lots of ways this is true. There are an infinite ways in which, uh, an infinite number of ways in which God is not like us. But in this series, we are looking at, at just ten of them, and, and we're already on number four. We're looking at He is. And these attributes of God are ways that He is not like us. And there are many ways that, that He shares in His character and all those things, but, but these ways in particular are ways that He is not like us. And so today we see God as self-sufficient. He is the God of infinite provision. He, he is self-existent, which we talked about last week. And he is self-sufficient, meaning that, that he had no beginning and, and now he has no need within himself. And those two things, when we add them together, we get to talk about next week, that he is then necessarily eternal. He has no end because he had no beginning and he has no need. And so he will be and he always has been. And, and this is good news for us. If I may, right, in this series, we want to bring this idea, that this big God down into uh, our living rooms, right? And, and into our, uh, the, the, the real lives that we get to live. But, but also we get to increase our theological understanding. So if I may, can I shoot kind of like a, a, a theological word at you that you might not be familiar with, right? Because we want to increase our understanding uh, of, uh, of, of, our, uh, of, of God in his word and how theologians talk about this stuff. So there's this word that, that's self-existent and, and self-sufficient. They play together in a description that's only true for God, and the word is aseity, all right? Aseity with me. I'm just kidding. Um, so, so there it is, all right? So, so you see that word. It has some Latin roots, meaning from, self and, and again, this is last week and this week kind of put together the quality or state of being self-derived or self-originated. He had no beginning. But that's also paired with I, this idea, specifically the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. So, he has no beginning and he has no void, he has no need, he has no dependence to anyone or any. Thing. As one says, what makes God different from people, from the stars, from earthquakes, and from any other creaturely thing is that God and God alone has a saity. He alone exists by his own power. No one made him or caused him. He exists in and of himself. And if that's true, then then this is the big idea. God alone has no need at all, and yet generously provides all that we need. God has, has no need at all, and yet he generously provides all that we need. Now, I've been setting this stuff up. This is a thematic series, right? It's, it's not a, we're not working through a book of the Bible, and so we never want to cherry pick and isolate scripture, uh, but we're doing that. 
Um, we're, we're doing that in this sense that we get to anchor some of these truths. What this is, it's, it's a study in systematic theology where we look at all of the scripture and see what it has to say about a particular topic. And today, that particular topic is the idea that God is, is self-sufficient. And we see this again in Acts 17. We were hanging out there last week. And, and in context, this is, in, uh, this is an evangelism uh, opportunity for Paul. He's hanging out in Athens, and he's interacting, and he's observing, and he sees that these people are very religious, and they have idols, and they have shrines, and they have all kinds of things, and he sees prayers, and they're praying to the unknown God just in case they don't know him by name, and they're praying to everyone, and Paul just takes, he takes it all in, and, and when he's engaging with them, he aligns them to see the one true God, and, and this is just a sliver of what he says about God. He says in Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Right? Just for a second. He, he doesn't say one of many gods. Who, he, he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and then he goes on to say what we looked at last week and in him we live and we move and we have our being so two points because i said you can't preach as long as you normally do right matt two points uh, that's never stopped me before the first one is this, and they're super simple. I, I want this to be simple in our understanding. The first one is this. God doesn't need you or anything else. Emphasis on God doesn't need you. And I know that sounds mean. Just like me encouraging you by telling you that the little old lady doesn't have any big deals in her life, right? God doesn't need you or anything else. And that may sound alarming or unkind or sad or hurtful, which comes from somewhere. That, when we hear that and that makes us sad, that comes from somewhere. See, one of the values that we seek is a desire to be wanted and a desire to be needed. And those two words are not quite the same thing. But when we have want, it means that we have a void. And when we need... It means we have a void that we must have filled. And so there's this song, I want you to want me. I need you to need me. Is that right? Right? And, and I remember, like, throughout my life, just, like, that is a real thing. You can hear her singing that and think, yeah, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want someone to want them? Who doesn't need someone to need them? And so, and so we're trained to see life this way, right? These two ideas, want and need, they're not, but they come from a place, uh, they're not the same thing, but they come from a place of a void, and God has no void. In fact, God has been eternally, perfectly, completely, sufficiently, full, satisfied, without want, without need, without void, Father, Son, Spirit, without beginning, eternally full in one another, putting all the attributes of the fullness of the incomprehensible, infinite, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal God on display without want and without need. 
What that means is, is that God can get along fine without you. But that doesn't sit right for some reason. God doesn't need me. That doesn't sit right. And, and, and I believe it's, it's because we're conditioned to be needed. And we have this romantic image of, of someone needing us so badly that they would throw away their career. That they would, they would leave their hometown. Or, or, or they, would, they would give up their life as they know it. Or even their own identity to meet our deepest void. There's this movie that came out way back in the 1900s. It was at the end of the 1900s, in 1997. And there's this guy played by Tom Cruise. And there's this woman played by uh, Renee Zellweger. And, and so they're in business together in this large firm. And, and basically they have athletic clients. And, and, and they're doing business deals. And it's kind of cutthroat in context. Tom Cruise, he gets upset, and he leaves, and he has this impassioned speech, and he says, who's coming with me? We're going to start our own thing. And there's this one woman, Renee Zellweger, and she, she leaves, and, and then they kind of they go into business, and it's like difficult, but then they, they fall in love, and, and they get married, and some things go south, and it's just the stress of everything and all this stuff. And, and finally, Tom Cruise, he's looking for his wife, and he goes to this house where he thinks she might be, and there's all these women there for like a just women hanging out thing, and, and whatever. And he walks in, that's what makes it more romantic, and he walks in and he says this, hello, hello, I'm looking for my wife, I'm not letting you get rid of me, how about that? Tonight? Our little project, our, our, our company had a big night, a very big night. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I miss my wife. Long dramatic pause. I live in a, he said, we live in a cynical world, a cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. Long pause. I love you. You complete me. And I just, shut up, she says, just shut up. You had me at hello. Hello. You had me at hello. If I'm being honest with you, even saying those words, even watching this clip to get the quote right in my office this week all by myself, <laughs> I'm like, that is emotional. <laughs> I do want someone to need me. I do want someone to complete me. I, I want someone to say that to me. <laughs> and the reality is, God has not stared deeply into the eyes of anyone or anything and, and tearfully whispered the words, you complete me. He's never done that. He never will 
do that. And, and further, if you think, if your idea of God looks like that, then you have a, a very me-centered view of God who is anything but you-centered. And if we look at God that way, it will show up in how you read the Bible. You will open the Bible and you will see every, uh, every word and every verse and every paragraph and every chapter and every book and every testament and the whole thing with you at the center of it. And, and, and it will in, impact how you pray. And, and, and you get to, by the finished work of Jesus, in the name of Christ alone, stand before the creator of the universe who made everything that is and, and who redeems and restores and sustains everything by his breath. And we stand before him and we make demands of our day. It will show up in how you find rest. It will show up in how you find salvation. If this life is centered around you and you are responsible to earn God's eye and his gifts and his forgiveness by the works of your hand, that impacts how you consider God. It will show up in where you find your joy. When I'm winning, then God is blessing. And when I'm losing by the standards of this life, then God surely must be against me. It will show up in the way that you present the gospel to those around you. The way that you present good news will, will sound a whole lot more like you presenting a list of laws to keep that you might, by your good merit, earn something that the eternal God has to offer. You know we get to ask for things. You know that the scriptures speak to us. You know that the, the spirit is near to us. All of those things. But, but we are not the center of any of those things. Man, I had the privilege this week to, to share the gospel with my great uncle. We'll call him Uncle Paul because his name's Paul. And so I hadn't seen him in 25 years probably, and, and someone in his pastor, and that's me. And so, can you come and talk to Uncle Paul? And so, like, okay, I'll go talk to sick, feeble Uncle Paul. And, and so, my dad was like, yeah, I'll go with you. And he's like, okay. And so, me and my dad are going to talk to Uncle Paul, and, and I, I get it. Like, I should be completely confident and comfortable doing something like that. Like, it's what I get to do, but, but those things make me nervous. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what the room is like. I don't know anything. I don't know Uncle Paul. <laughs> and so I'm supposed to, and so I'm reading scripture and thinking of things, and, and I, whatever. I'm prepared somewhat, and, and we're, we're, we're in the room, and we're catching up, and we're talking about westerns and gun smoke, and, and he's interacting, but you have to scream really loud. And my dad... My dad says, Paul, what do you think about God? And I nearly fell over. <laughs> and, then, and then I just engaged and asked some questions. And, 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 and basically, I ended up saying something like this. Paul, 
Your life is not about you. My life is not about me. And I know in your mind, you're probably thinking of all the things that you did, or all the things that you didn't do. And I'm screaming this. He's hard of hearing. I'm doing it through a mask. He can't even read my lips. I, and I went on to say some other things. And we looked at Ephesians 2. And he probably heard me. And, and we talked about following Jesus. And he said, well, yeah, I want to do that. And it was fantastic, Paul. This is good news. I started there because everybody thinks that this life is about us. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything, anyone else. There's no better news than a God who can't be bought, who can't be manipulated, who can't be blackmailed. He'll never compromise who he is because he's too tired or too hungry or too needy. There's a guy in Scripture who gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. You know that? He was really hungry. And his brother said, hey, you can have all that comes with being the firstborn if you give me that soup. And he didn't. God is not like that. He has no weakness in him. Uh, and, and so there's no leverage. All of the things that we look at, it, it becomes a matter of, of leverage and provision is employer and employee. And, and all these things that we think about and the way that we operate in this life, God does not work that way. A.W. Tozer, I said we would quote him a bajillion times, and, and I will again. Uh, the problem of why God created the universe still troubles thinking men. But if we cannot know why... We can at least know that he did not bring his worlds into being to meet some unfulfilled need in himself. As a man might build a house to shelter him against winter cold or plant a field of word, necessary is wholly foreign to God. So God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't need a home made by the hands of man, nor is he served by human hands as though he would need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so not only does God not have need, but in the starkest contrast we could possibly imagine, point two, we need God desperately. While he is completely independent, we are utterly dependent. And Tozer went on to say, To admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. Need is a creature word. Think about how much we need From the time we're born, we come into the world empty, naked, helpless, in utter despair apart from every provision. The Grahams had the privilege of watching uh, a few kids that were very small yesterday for a few hours. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful when we get to do that. Um, now, when kids get a little older, they come with their own problems, right? Um, but, but it's quite unique to have the one that, you know, he... he he can't feed himself. And I remember as a parent, like, 
I remember like literally high-fiving when, you know, one of the kids could hold their bottle for themselves. And you're like, oh, this is nice. I don't have to drive, like, you know, or whatever. Like, this is just really good. Like, what freedom we have. We, we are, are nothing. We wouldn't survive the weak without the provision of, of lots. And, and that, that changes and, and shapes and shifts on through adulthood. But we still find ourselves in, in need. Jen Wilkins says, We need him every hour, but he needs us not at all. Not for life, not for love, not for worship, or for glory. Nothing in or of God depends on you. And in this truth, we find so much freedom in our desperate need. You don't have to go through life living as if you're without need. As if you're self-sufficient. I, I want to say that just one more time and just breathe. You don't have to go through life as if you don't have any needs outside of you. You are not a bottomless well. You will run dry. And it might be your energy, finances, you name the category. You, you, have, a, you have an end. You are not self-sufficient. You are dependent upon other things. And, and Paul, he makes this, this uh, contrast in, a, I, I think, a humorous way. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so in this, he, he speaks to wisdom and strength specific, specifically. But the bigger aim is to create a contrast between God and man. God has no weakness. He has no foolishness in him. N none at all. And yet he, he paints out this picture. I think of the, the cowardly lion who's who's uh, in, in Wizard of Oz, and he says this line, and, you know, I, I, uh, put him up, put him up. I'll fight you with my eyes closed. I'll, I'll fight you with one paw tied behind my back. After all, he is the king of the jungle. He's the cowardly lion, right? The, the emphasis from the lion is that he's so strong that even when disadvantaged, he's still able to give a, a, a courageless beatdown. But even the lion is no match for the Father who brought all that is into existence by His Word alone and, and Christ who holds all things together. And look, when we read those, those scriptures that tell us that Christ holds all things together, it's not like He's straining and He's struggling like, like Father, please send me back because I don't think I can hold on much longer. He's holding all things together, resting and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. All things that hold together. My life is spinning out of control, and, and yet all things that hold together. Your body is not floating around in parts. It is, it is contained. All things hold together. Universes and stars, all things hold together. All things hold together by the word of His power. So breathe deep, 
and let your heart cry out with a sigh of confession. I'm weak. I have needs that I can't satisfy. I, I forget that. I have a deep need for something greater than me. And that something is, is to know and to be known by the God of this universe. We need God desperately. Now, does that mean that we are helpless? No. Does that mean that we go about our days waiting? Does that mean that we are just a pathetic waste of God's creation? Waste of the dust of the ground? No. That, that, that's, not what, that's not what the Bible teaches us. Tozer went on to say, God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made. He has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure. Not from anything those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. God made us because he desired to make us. And, and this God who doesn't need us, and who isn't completed by us, Loves us in spite of us. He loves us in spite of the way that we don't love Him. He desires to dwell with us in spite of the way we don't dwell with Him. This is true from the beginning all the way to the end. We see the sweetness in, in Zechariah uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you, this is to God's people, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's what the self-sufficient, self-existent, infinite, eternal God says about his people. When you when you touch them, you're messing with the apple of my eye. And I'm not going to stand for that. He went on there to tell of, of, of how he was going to fight for and dwell with his people. And one day, when his people weren't thankful, and they weren't living with him, and they weren't acknowledging him, and they weren't mindful of him, or dwelling with him, he came to replace he took on flesh to come to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And Jesus did that by living in, in the way that we can never live pleasing to the Father, by dying the death that we all deserve to die as judgment for our sin and rebellion against God, for raising from the dead, defeating death and sin and hell and judgment and inviting us to follow Him to forgiveness and eternal life. 
I know many people have, have been reading this book, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Super small chapters, lots of them. It's like just about Jesus in your life. It's by Dane Ortland, and, um, and I'm not all the way through it yet, but it is good. I want to read a, 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 a paragraph to help us kind of close this out. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep. I want you to think about this, right? I'm reading, but don't let that cause your mind to drift, okay? A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. The doctor has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy. He has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? The doctor feels joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers but his own family. So with us and so with Christ, he does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. God alone has no need at all and yet generously provides all that we need. And so you might say, well, so what? Well, if this is true, we get to do three things. The first one is, is what I closed out with my Uncle Paul. We, we know this scripture, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that rest is not just sleep in the afterlife. It is rest for wearied souls, even while we continue on in this broken life around us. We get to go to him. And, and maybe you've never done that before. Or maybe you thought you have, but you've never said, you know what? I want to follow Jesus. Right? Maybe a helpful way to consider it would be flip the center of your life. You've been living as if you were the center of all that is. And it turns out God in his infinite greatness is the center of all that is. And yet he loves you and he invites you to follow him to trust him for the forgiveness of sin so that we might have eternal life with him and his people forever the second thing is we get to pray to him see prayer pushes us to talk it out to declare what's true to process with the spirit of truth and to depend on the one who endlessly provides Prayer isn't just asking for things, although we get to ask for things. But it is primarily dependence. So when we do not pray, 
What that reveals about us is that we think ourselves self-sufficient and self-sufficient. We are not, not in the small things and not in the big things. And the last thing is this. We get to serve through him. What this means is, is we get to engage the world around us through our void, through our weakness, because of the God who provides. We get to be used as God would desire in each of us. Not only do we need God, but we need others. And God uses his church. And I say this all the time. Sometimes you get to need the church. For someone who says, gosh, I just feel bad about all this, you know, people just making meals and caring. For, sometimes we get to need the church, and sometimes we get to be the church, and both are A-O-K. And both come from the, the, the generous provider of God um, and, and all who is. And so, so God invites us to join the work of providing for his purposes by serving those around us. Man, we get to reflect and repent and respond. There are some questions on the screen. You can pray right where you are. There's a prayer bench over there. You can stand up. If you want us to know anything, fill out a connect card so that we might be able to follow up with you. There will be some people over there that would love to pray with you. My wife and I will be back by that red tree. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your grace and your mercy and that, that you don't need us and yet you love us anyway. Thank you that we can come to you with things big and small because none of those things are big in your world. God, we love you and we need you in Jesus' name. Amen.